Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. One of the major components of Governor Tom Wolf's campaign for governor in 2014 was a proposal to put a severance tax on natural gas drillers in Pennsylvania. Wolf's proposed, use, proposed using the revenue generated for increased spending on education. Even though Pennsylvania may or may not have a final budget after more than six months, a severance tax was not part of it. Wolf has promised to propose a severance tax in his next budget. That address will come up in about three weeks. Several lawmakers have also joined in with their own proposals. Democratic State Representative Mike Sterla of Lancaster County is one of them, and his proposal is a little bit different than the others. Joining us is Representative Sterla. Representative Sterla, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, let's start with the components of what you're proposing. Um, well, essentially what I've done is said, uh, look, I understand the argument that uh, when gas prices are as low as they are right now, I mean, at one point in time here, I think we were at like 78 cents an MCF, um, that uh, the uh, natural gas companies aren't making as much money as they have in their business model. I think their business model is set up around uh, $2 an MCF. Um, you know, and so, you know, taxing something that uh, is in uh, easy supply and selling at a really low price uh, doesn't get you a whole lot of revenue. I think the uh, proposal that got shot down on the floor of the House uh, would have generated a couple hundred million dollars, which, you know, most people say, hey, that's a pretty good chunk of money, but uh, it's far short of the, the billion dollars that uh, had been originally projected uh, by doing a Marcellus Shale severance tax. Um, so what this proposal does is says, look, we get it that uh, when the gas is selling at a low price, um, you know, let's, let's allow the gas companies to recoup their costs, uh, to pay the, the uh, impact fee that's currently imposed um, and, you know, do what's necessary for the local communities and, and that part of it. Um, and so it probably wouldn't generate, my proposal probably wouldn't generate a whole lot of money when gas is selling at the low price that it is. Um, we also know that as soon as there are pipelines in Pennsylvania that uh, allow this to be exported out of the state, I mean, most of the gas that's being produced in the state right now can't get out of the state because we don't have the pipelines to do it yet. Um, but as soon as that happens, uh, it's expected by uh, industry people, at least what they tell me, is that it'll be uh, selling at over $3 an MCF uh, because they'll have access to foreign markets and other parts of the country that uh, don't have such a ready supply of natural gas. Um, when that happens, then I say, okay, let's start, you know, we'll go a sliding scale and we'll actually increase the percentage of the tax as the cost of the gas goes up. Um, and so it goes up as high as uh, 9% if they're getting uh, over $5 an MCF for the gas. Um, you know, understand that they're making uh, money past their business model at $2 an MCF. Um, so um, it really is saying, you know, share the wealth when, in fact, you guys are, are doing well in this industry as a result of uh, the natural resources that we have here in the state of Pennsylvania. Just just for background purposes, what's MCF? A uh, uh, thousand cubic feet. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, um, the uh, the other part of the program is, uh, or the, the legislation is to say, 
And instead of taking any dollars that we get off of that and putting it into the general fund budget, which, you know, a lot of uh, folks go, well, there you go. It's going into a black hole. We never see it again. We don't know what it's being used for. You can't really dedicate it somewhere. You can't, you know. I've said, let's actually take the revenue generated by the Marcellus Shale severance tax and dedicate it expressly for uh, the use uh, to pay down the unfunded liability in uh, public pensions that we have in the state of Pennsylvania, which currently is around $53 billion. Um, And so that would go to make the payments that the school districts make um, toward uh, their share of that liability. Uh, now, people say, well, gosh, why don't you just do pension reform? Uh, we, we did pension reform in 2010. Even the proposals that are, have been proposed since then to, to make even more changes don't do anything to reduce the $53 billion unfunded liability, which is what's causing the concern in the first place. Um, by using this, these dollars specifically for that unfunded liability and paying off that old debt from years when we didn't, as a state, pay into the pension system, which is what the problem was, not the fact that people were getting outrageous benefits. It was that we just didn't pay our share into the pension system. Um, well, let me let me we're going to talk about all those things. But let me start with what you brought up about the, the price of gas right now. And you realize that the industry is down a little bit. Why do it at all right now if that be the case? Well, I look at it and say, why not? Um, you know, if if as a result of the legislation we passed, there's really not uh, new uh, dollars generated, no one can say we're putting the industry out of business. Um, and conversely, as the cost of gas increases and, for instance, school districts have to start now paying higher heating bills, the... Uh, tax on Marcella Shale, the severance tax on Marcella Shale uh, gas, would then start to kick in and start to pay their pension obligations. Um, and so it really starts to, it, you know, when it kicks in, it's in place. I, you know, there's some people who say, well, just wait until gas gets to $3 an MCF. Well, why should I wait for that? Um, why not pass legislation that says, you know, and even, even at um, th- this proposal, if a gas well is in place long enough, when they've paid their impact fee, when they've paid their recouped their costs, when they've done all those things, at some point in time, it starts making money for them because they've already paid all the drilling costs off. They've already paid all the impact fees off. They've already paid off everything else. And it starts making money to the point where, uh, th- at that point in time, a 3% tax would be minimal uh, compared to other states in the nation. And so it, this would still generate some dollars, uh, particularly for older wells. Um, so there's no reason not to start doing this. Um, and, you know, even if it's a couple hundred million dollars a year, which people say, oh, my gosh, what a paltry sum of money. That's a couple hundred million dollars a year t- toward the unfunded liability, which gets it paid off. Uh, in a reasonable amount of time. All right, we're going to talk about all those things, but let's talk a little more specifically about what you're proposing. You mentioned the sliding scale. The tax rate would be based on the cost of gas. What specifically are you proposing? I mean, you don't have to list all the rates, but uh, how would it work? Well, it starts at at 3% for gas uh, selling at less than a dollar per MCF and goes to 9% for gas selling over $5 per MCF. Um, And so... You know, when you get, like I said, once you get past the $2 an MCF uh, model, you're, that's, 
that's what some industry people tell me was their business model that they set out years ago as that's when they're making as much money as they think is reasonable to make, uh, you know, by gas industry standards. Um, and so literally anything beyond that. And when, you, you know, look, when I talk to industry people, they say, hey, listen, we'll use the, uh, you know, when it's a trading at $5 uh, an MCF, uh, we use all that money to reinvest and put capital back into things and, you know, build up our reserves and do all, I, I get all that. I'm not saying that we're taking everything over $3 an MCF. I'm saying we're taking, at that point in time, $5, uh, or, or excuse me, 9% of anything uh, that's over uh, $5 an MCF. Um, you know, drillers uh, are paying that impact fee that you mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, that money, for the which most is actually, Which is actually a regressive tax because the impact fee is static. And so when gas is at uh, $0.78 cents an MCF, the percentage of impact fee on that gas is higher than it is when gas is at $5 an MCF, which, again, is counterintuitive to the way we should be taxing uh, natural gas in the state of Pennsylvania. But that impact fee that uh, you, you mentioned, uh, it's very popular with municipalities that right. uh, are, right. ne- are near the drilling sites. Uh, what are you proposing? What would happen to that impact fee once your legislation would kick in? Well, I'm saying that the first thing that those uh, companies do is pay the impact fee, and that gets deducted from their liability uh, on the severance tax. So I'm keeping that in place. Now, you know, look, I would love to see that go away, quite frankly, um, because, you know, in my mind, not being in the Marcello Shale area, um, I look at it and say, okay, so that's your impact. Guess what? I've got a, or somebody in uh, King of Prussia has a mall. That has a huge impact on their traffic congestion, on their, you know, you name it, all sorts of things. You know, their, their police force has to be out there enforcing uh, shoplifting laws and all that kind of stuff. They have a huge impact there. Do they get to keep the sales tax off the King of Prussia Mall? And the answer is no. We share it statewide. Um, so I look at a Marcella Shale impact fee and say, guys, you know, I mean, why is this not something that gets shared statewide just like everything else? But I'm willing to concede the fact that I'm probably not going to win that argument. So I'll keep the Marcella Shale impact fee in place. And they get to deduct that first from what they owe to the state. Looking around other states in the country that uh, have severance taxes, and we've heard often that Pennsylvania is the only one that does not have an extraction or severance tax. West Virginia is the state that uh, we hear about most often, probably because it's the closest one to us and still in in the Marcellus Shale. But from what I understand, West Virginia is actually thinking about backing off of their uh, uh, their extraction tax right now because prices are so low and that fear of losing jobs. Alaska collected $900 million less in tax revenue this year. I guess my question is, is it reliable since it depends on the price of gas? Well, and that's why I'm dedicating it to uh, paying off the unfunded liability. I don't need a reliable source to help pay off that unfunded liability. What I need is a source that says, this will be here to help pay it off when the price of gas is higher. Um, but if I'm going to base my general fund budget on an unreliable source of income, that's a pretty risky proposition for me. Um, so I'm using it to do something that we haven't figured out how to pay off yet um, and using it for long term. Uh, you know, the, the, any projection on paying off the $53 billion in unfunded liability is a 35-year projection 
and it's you know at rates of 20 and 30 percent of payroll um, that's that's a tough nut to swallow for school districts so this is saying let's take some of this these dollars and dedicate these dollars to helping pay that off um, part of the reason that West Virginia's uh, uh, looking at lowering it is because they did the same thing. They used it to their impact fee to start paying off their pension system and making it whole, and they're getting to a point where their pension system is nearing being whole again. Um, so they can look at backing that off a little bit. Um, they accomplished what it is that I'm trying to accomplish in this legislation. Um, and, and so this really is about looking to the future as opposed to just saying, uh, you know, well, does it do anything today? And if the answer is no, then not. And I'll also say, because you mentioned Alaska, um, I was up there a few years ago, and uh, the TV ads running were uh, literally that they had to lower their taxes on, uh, you know, uh, energy coming out of Alaska because they were competing with other states like Pennsylvania, which didn't have any tax at all. Um, you know, so these companies use this to play against each other uh, in terms of, uh, you know, well, gosh, look, they're lowering theirs. You should lower yours, you, you know, just because... Look, we don't have one, and people tell me that the gas industry is leaving here. Um, I don't know how much lower than no tax you can get um, unless we start subsidizing the gas companies to take it for free. You know, Just out of curiosity, I mean, was Pennsylvania mentioned by name, or did they say states like Pennsylvania? They said states, yeah. Okay, they, yeah. all right. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Democratic State Representative Mike Sterla of Lancaster County. He is proposing a severance tax on natural gas drillers with the revenue going toward paying down the debt on public pensions here in Pennsylvania. We have uh, a few minutes left with Representative Sterla. If you have some questions or comments, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on witf.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Representative Sterla, obviously politics is a big part of this. Uh, Republicans have said all along that they would not support increased taxes. We're still in the middle of uh, a budget impasse, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. But uh, we don't have a final budget just yet. Uh, Governor Wolf had proposed uh, a severance tax last year. He's promised to propose another one when he uh, has his budget address in three weeks. What makes your legislation a little bit different? Because it's not only the governor proposing it, but I know there are several other legislators out there who have severance tax proposals as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I think that, um, you know, the handwriting is on the wall. Um, it's going to be hard for uh, any member of the legislature, uh, with the possible exception of a handful that are in the heart of uh, where the drilling is most concentrated, to be able to get reelected uh, by telling their constituents that uh, they don't think that, you know, or, or that they think that we should be the only state in the nation that doesn't have a severance tax. Um, that's, that just doesn't sell with the public anymore, particularly given the protracted nature of the budget uh, battle and the, the lack of funds, um, you know, to say, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm still not going to tax anyone. Um, we'll just continue to operate with a deficit. I just don't think that cuts the mustard anymore. Um, you know, and as far as the, the budget is concerned, even if we go with the uh, – you know, budget that the Republicans in the House tried to insist on that the governor uh, blue-lined portions of, the $30.2 billion budget, 
you still need to increase revenue to pay for what's in that budget. That's not a, oh, well, it's $30.2 billion and it pays for itself. It's $30.2 billion and it runs out of money in month 11. So somewhere along the line, someone's going to have to figure out and, and actually, you know, become an adult in the room and say, hey, um, you know, there's a bill to pay here. And we're going to have to figure out how to generate enough revenue to do that. Once there is the final realization, and my hope is that that comes sooner rather than later, but when there's the final realization on the part of House Republicans, who are the only holdout at this point in time, that in fact we do have to increase revenues, then the question is do you increase revenues to get to the $30.2 billion number and only fund line items as you were the previous year and still run a deficit and still continue with a structural deficit, or do you go to the $30.8 billion level and increase revenues enough to start getting us out of our deficit spending and uh, start to spend down the, or pay down the structural deficit and actually start funding schools and uh, you know, social service agencies, which had been cut in the past and are struggling uh, to get by every year. Republicans, as I mentioned, have said that they would not support a severance tax uh, because they say it's a job killer. And, and they point out that the gas prices are so low right now. Why would they support this? Well, uh, for example, a proposal like mine is not a job killer. It doesn't, you know, it, it does not uh, increase the liability for the gas industry by uh, a recognizable amount now. Um, what it does is says, look, we expect that we're going to have pipelines in place in uh, you know a couple years, at which point in time this will actually start helping us with that pension uh, problem that we have, um, and that's part of what our you know the the hue and cry from the other side of the aisle has been, you know, look, we got this huge pension thing we got to pay off. Uh, you know, how are you going to pay that off? And they've said we're going to do pension reform, but that does nothing to reduce our costs, unless they put collars, which one of their proposals did, put collars on when we do that, and all that does is extend the, the uh, uh, time in which we pay off that debt and actually increases the debt, um, because you're just pushing it farther down the road. Um, so, but let me let me say some of the pushback from Republicans. Uh, I saw a response from House Republicans, and by the way, they had not seen your bill at that time. Uh, was and what they said was that the the pension debt has to be structurally fixed, and this is just throwing money at it. Well, but their proposals for pension reform don't structurally fix the debt. What their pension reform plans do is cut benefits to future employees. But, you know, the, the reforms that we did in 2010 are fully funded and costing 3 to 4% of payroll. By anyone's business standards, that is a great position to be in. So what they've now done is say, well, we need to cut the benefits even farther. And if we have any savings coming off of cutting those benefits even farther, we'll use it to pay off the old pension debt. Well, that's a really questionable tactic, uh, you know, court cases – basically point to the fact that that's going to get overturned. So all they're doing is delaying, uh, you know, uh, a decision uh, so that the courts make the decision for them instead of them um, and say, yeah, we still can't pay off that debt. They now, don't, their, their pension reform plans do not address the debt. All right, let's go to the phone now. Max is in Lancaster. Max, you're on the air. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Uh, I would just like to say that it is uh, frustrating that we've gone so long 
without any sort of excise tax. Obviously, Alaska, who <laughs> has a ton of resources, has done it for years. Um, and to hear the excuses that when the energy market is through the roof, we can't do it then. That when the market's low, we can't set something in place to prepare for it, it being high again. Um, I completely support what you're doing. Um, I vote. My family votes. Uh, keep up the good work, sir. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Let me just follow up on that, Representative Sterla. And Max kind of uh, represents the majority when uh, you polls of, of Pennsylvanians. But I'm going to pull in a couple, an, another question in that. Uh, most Pennsylvanians, when they look at the polls, uh, when they are polled, are asked about their support for a severance tax on natural gas, and the majority do support it. Other polls, though, and you were talking about Republicans and pension reform, when what Republicans have proposed is that uh, future hires, um, not the current state employees, but future hires would go into a 401k type uh, retirement plan rather than a fixed pension. Uh, the polls seem to support that as well as the public and, you know, most of the public uh, people out there in, in Pennsylvania, uh, they have a 401k rather than a fixed pension. So let me just, it's, it's kind of a long question, but this is, those two things are what the public supports. Right, right. And and the Democrats, as the governor said, he would sign a pension bill if the Republicans got it to him. And and when we said, okay, let's sit down and negotiate a pension bill, the Republicans basically said to the Democrats in the House and Senate, we got this ourselves. We don't want your uh, input on a pension reform bill. We want to we want the reforms to be our reforms, uh, and we're going to do 100 percent of the votes for it. And then when they couldn't come up with the votes for it, they said, okay, you guys need to vote for this. And we said, well, do we get a say in what's in the reform bills? And they said, well, no, you just have to vote for it. Well, you know, that's really not a negotiation. Um, and, look, I understand the public saying, hey, everybody else has a 401K, how about us? The, the, the thing I think that needs to be understand, understood from a historic perspective, 401Ks were established for uh, CEOs, essentially, because – under the uh, almost every company used to have a defined benefit pension plan and under those defined benefit pension plans if you were getting stock options or you were getting year-end bonuses which CEOs did that didn't count toward your pension and so the guy would say well look I'm making four hundred thousand dollars a year as a CEO uh, but only a hundred thousand is counting toward my pension I that that doesn't work for me so the federal government established a 401k plan to allow them to take their stock options and bonuses and those kind of things and convert them into a, a pension plan, essentially, so that they could then, when they retired, have, you know, their pension at a $400,000 level instead of the $100,000 level. When the, when what happened was, once that started happening, um, what, what you saw with the defined benefit pension plans was there were some companies that were going out of business. And if you remember, this is, I'm talking 25, 30 years ago, Companies were going out of business, and before they would go out of business, they would raid their pension plans to try and stay in business. And once they failed, they would say, oh, guess what? We're bankrupt, and oh, by the way, the pension plan isn't worth a dime. And so the, veter the federal government had to start bailing out pension plans so that workers didn't you know, go bankrupt themselves, the workers. They were doing that, and that started to become a popular trend. And so the federal government said, hey, we can't have this happen anymore. You know what? You actually have to have your defined benefit pension plan in place, and it has to be fully funded within a seven-year time frame instead of a 30-year time frame, which is what they normally do. 
Hey, the, Representative Sir, I'm almost out of time. One, okay. fi- one final okay. question. The, the, the point of it is that when that started happening, companies started getting raided for their pension plans because their pension plans were worth a lot of money. And so companies said, the only way I can protect my workers is to go to a 401k. That is not the case with a statewide pension system. A state pension system, no corporations coming in and buying out the state to, to drain our pension system. And so there's a difference between public pensions and private pensions in that sense. And so while I understand the public wanting to say, hey, if I got it, how comes they don't, it, it, it places people in a vulnerable position. I want to know who's... 401k pension plan is going down in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Just talking about that yesterday. Hey, uh, one final question. Uh, is this in legislative form, in bill form yet? Uh, why do you think that uh, this stands a better chance of, of passage and, and what's next with it? It is in bill form. I haven't introduced it, but I, but I have the, the bill ready to introduce. Uh, I've been getting some co-sponsors. Um, I think it stands a chance. And what I've said is, look, I don't expect people to take this and say, this is it. This is the exact thing that should happen. And we're just going to rubber stamp that bill without any changes to it. And we don't want to have any input. You know, Sterlis figured it out. You know, the, What I did want to do is make sure that these concepts were introduced so that when we do, and I believe we will do uh, some form of severance tax, that at least these concepts get put into place so that we can find that balance between making sure that we're not chasing jobs out of the state of Pennsylvania, but at the same time making sure that the citizens of Pennsylvania get to benefit from this natural resource that we have here. I mean, we're sitting on the BTU equivalent of Saudi Arabia, and for us to pass on getting something for the citizens of Pennsylvania as a result of that would just be a criminal. Any Republican co-sponsors? Uh, I have to. Ch- I actually didn't check it yet. I have to check and see who is the who the co-sponsors are. Okay, Representative Mike Sterla, Democrat from Lancaster County. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You can hear today's show and previous editions of Smart Talk at WITF.org/podcast or with the WITF app. You can also hear the entire program tonight at seven or on our website, WITF.org. Since 2007, when Pennsylvania's natural gas industry began to take off, dozens of people have moved between state government and the private sector in positions related to the environment, the oil and gas industry, and lobbying. State Impact Pennsylvania's Marie Cusick has documented some of the moves back and forth in a new feature called Pennsylvania's Blurred Lines. And State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick joins me right now. Marie, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Scott. Okay, what prompted this series? What were you looking to find out? Well, you know, we've all heard about the revolving door. It's very common in government in Washington, D.C. and here in Harrisburg. Uh, but as a reporter, I've been on this beat for about three years now, and there's I've, I've witnessed one change in administrations, uh, the election of Governor Tom Wolf. Um, so what I've seen just sitting in meetings is, you know, some people who were sitting up formally next to the secretary of the department, they're now in the back of the room as a lobbyist. And it's quite common. Um, people know this takes place. But I just thought, wouldn't it be interesting to try to visually show it to the public? Because people hear about it, but this is a this website that we've created um, with our really talented graphics designer, Tom Downing, here. Um, it just shows you just a flavor of it. And I, I want to say this is certainly not a comprehensive list of everybody. Yeah, how many moved. people are you looking at? Uh, we have a, close to 40 people. Um, and we tried to just focus on high-level people. So most of them 
are either secretaries of an agency or deputy secretaries, um, pretty much state government jobs in the Rendell, Corbett, and Wolf administrations. So it's certainly not a comprehensive list. We'd like to keep it updated to track people. We can add people if, you know, I have my email address right there on the site. If I miss somebody, I'm sure I missed many people. But So for those listening who may want to multitask and go <laughs> to the website while they're listening, uh, it is on WITF.org. And if you click under news, it's State Impact Pennsylvania, but it's also on our front page today as well called Blurred Lines, right? Right. Or you could go to stateimpact.npr.org slash Pennsylvania. And I got to tell you that uh, Marie mentioned Tom Downing, our graphic artist, and he did a fantastic job because what you do is you can click on the years. There's the years starting at 2007 to the left. When you click on a year, uh, the portraits of the people that uh, Marie uh, looks at goes back and forth between state government and the private sector. Why 2007? Why did you start in 2007? I had to pick an arbitrary point in time because some of these people are older and they have very long careers and some are younger. Um, but what I tried to do is say, well, hey, we focus on this latest energy boom, the Marcellus Shale drilling boom. And there has been so much engagement from uh, lobbying and environmental advocacy groups and, of course, the oil and gas business and state government. So much has happened. So I figured let's just go back to the beginning of the boom. It really started on the, under Ed Rendell's administration. And so we've had a Democrat. We, we had a Republican, Tom Corbett. Now we have a Democrat again. So there are people who cycled in and out. Corbett people have left and Rendell people have come back in again to the Wolf administration. So I figured that's just a good parameter to put around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you use the term revolving door. But the series is called Blurred Lines. Is there a reason for that? Well, I have to admit I was inspired by the uh, Robin Thicke song that was popular a couple <laughs> summers ago. Just, I am not. Just want to say I'm not a fan of the song. Um, but I think the revolving door is, you know, everybody uses that term. Um, but some of these people didn't have a revolution. Some of them just left uh, the public sector and went to the private sector. So not all of them revolved yet, uh, or maybe they never will. Um, Also, you know, what I noticed is I think there's a misconception sometimes that uh, the the Republicans are are more aligned with the business community and the Democrats are more aligned with the environmental advocacy groups. I I think when you get up close, actually, you see a lot of crossover. Um, There are former Corbett officials who are lobbying for environmental groups, and there are many Rendell folks who've gone to the oil and gas business. It's just, it's not, it's much more mixed up than you might realize from, you know, a thousand foot view. And I think that's why I I thought it was a good term. And we're going to have some examples in just a few minutes here. Blurred lines also, in some people's minds, may connotate that there's something unethical about this. Is there? Well, I do want to make clear, I'm not accusing anyone of violating any ethics laws or doing anything nefarious. But I think... What it brings, what when you show it at the scale with all these people, again, these are not all the people, but when you see it, I think the public really does deserve to have confidence that their public officials are acting in the public interest and not acting in their own self-interest uh, because they may, may need a job when the administration's change or just helping their friends or business associates with you know, firms they're associated with. Some of these people are associated with companies that have gotten a lot of state grants. Um, So it's not accusing anyone of anything, but clearly I think the public has every right to ask questions about 
who are these people and where have they been working? Well, let me push back for just a moment. Uh, everyone, you know, needs a job and deserves a job. And if you have spe- knowledge in a special area, then why not take advantage of that? Absolutely. These, you know, I'm not suggesting that anyone, uh, that these people need an income. They need to put food on the table. Um, but I think what you see when you look at our state ethics law is there is a one-year buffer zone. So if you leave um, your state government job, you are not allowed for one year to lobby the government body that you are affiliated with, um, which sounds good. But, um, you know, government reform groups would really like to see it strengthened because, for example, if you worked in the governor's office, that means you can't lobby the governor's office. You know, you could lobby the House and the Senate. And, and uh it, it, these people have a broad sphere of influence, and they're really not—they're really narrowly prohibited uh, from lobbying and the narrow, you know, agency or department that they were with. So there sounds like there could be some loopholes, or maybe not even loopholes, some big holes to drive a truck through with some of the that, with that ethics law. And I don't know whether you can answer this or not, or whether you looked at it. But how does Pennsylvania's ethics, ethics law compare to other states? You know, I didn't I didn't look at it stacked up against other states, but, um, you know, I did talk to some government reform groups who would like to see it strengthened. Mm. Okay, we're going to provide some examples of uh, some of the people that uh, Marie did profile in blurred lines in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest during this portion of the program is State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick. She has a new series, and you can see it online at WITF.org. It's called Blurred Lines, looking at the move between high-ranking state government officials moving back and forth positions, jobs in the private sector related to the environment, related to the oil and gas industry, related to lobbying. Uh, And as Marie just said, there's nothing unethical about it. But at the same time, it's one of those things that a lot of people well Maria I'll let you answer that question I was just about to say what what ends up happening is in today's political atmosphere many people are cynical of their government and wonder whether those working in government have the people they represent in mind or their own self-interest it, it, when people look at this even though it may not be unethical there are no laws being violated as far as we know It just has that perception. Right. Well, I'll just give you one example. So John Hanger, who was the former DEP secretary under Rendell, he is now back in government. Uh, He's he's one of the former Rendell people that Wolf tapped. He works in the governor's office. I think you had him on the show very recently. Yes, just last Um, week. So, you know, the Wolf administration says repeatedly they uh, are, you know, value transparency and they 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 have done many things that will give them credit uh to to try to increase transparency but for example he worked as a private consultant during the corbett years um for john hanger llc and when i asked uh he wouldn't say who he worked for so uh, the governor's spokesman said that john hanger will recuse himself in any instance where there's a conflict with you know a former client or something but I don't know what those former clients were. Who were they? You know, if you look at his ethics form, he worked for John Hanger LLC. So what does that mean? It's it's kind of a meaningless disclosure as far as I'm concerned. Um, so again, I'm not accusing him of doing anything unethical. It's just 
I don't think that's an unreasonable question to ask. Who did you work for? Was he the only one who didn't answer your question? Uh, no, John Quigley also was a private consultant. He's now the DEP secretary. He was also a Rendell appointee. He was former DCNR secretary. He did disclose a couple clients. Um, he worked for Penn Future, which is um, one of the state's leading environmental organizations. And he also worked for the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, but wouldn't elaborate on who else he worked for. He, you know, through a spokesman, he said he worked for many groups. And so what you're saying with uh, both uh, John Hanger and John Quigley is the, we kind of have to count on them. Well, okay, Hanger uh, saying rec he will recuse himself from anything where he dealt with former clients, but we, have to, we don't know who they are, so right. we kind of have to rely on him. Right. Exactly. And again, we're not here questioning his integrity or anything like that, but that's not the way transparency but in that's, government works. that's not an unreasonable question for, for me to ask, I think, is who were you working for? By the way, if you have a question or a comment about uh, Marie Cusick's uh, Blurred Lines series, uh, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can go to WITF's Facebook page. That phone number is 1-800-729-7532. We have several other people we want to touch on. As you mentioned, almost 40, so I'm not going to ask about all 40. Uh, just encourage our listeners to uh, go to uh, the website, WITF.org, and go to the State Impact. What were we going to say? I, I just want to point out, too, these are just people who relate to energy and the environment and state government. So I, by no means is this a comprehensive list of people in government who've moved between the public and private sector. All right. Let's start with one of the biggies. Ed Rendell, the former governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, Ed Rendell. He's a busy man. I, I would have to admit I am surprised at how busy he was. Yeah, his assistant actually sent me a list, which I have here. It's uh, I think it was 38 business ventures uh, he was involved with in 2015. So he, um, you know, some of them he's just advisory board members to things. Uh, he's consultant to companies. Uh, many people may know and see him. He's a political analyst for NBC, and he's on MSNBC. Um, so yeah, he's he's very busy. Okay, but what about uh, those positions related to the industry, industry, energy industry, uh, or natural gas lobbying, those kind of things? Well, yeah, I'll just point out. I think uh, you know people criticize the Corbett administration uh, sometimes for being too close to the gas industry, but really it was. Ed Rendell and under his administration that the state, you know, welcomed in the gas industry. Um, so that's not always noted. Uh, but what, what so a few things I'll point out that that came out in the news after Rendell left office were, um, you know, before I came back home to Pennsylvania to take this job, I was in Albany, New York. And as many people may know, there was a really hot debate going on about Has whether for years. Yeah, <laughs> about whether New York would allow fracking in its um, you know jurisdiction but you know Rendell actually penned a, a column in the New York Daily News um, in 2013 where he was encouraging Governor Andrew Cuomo who's also a Democrat uh, heads New York to say hey I'm a fellow Democrat and you should um, embrace fracking it's been great for Pennsylvania so um, the, it later came out that he had they had to add an addendum to the column uh, to disclose that he was a consultant to element partners which is a private equity firm with a stake in a number of energy companies including natural gas interests so they kind of tacked that on later after he wrote that column 
Um, another story that came out was that, you know, through a Freedom of Information Act request by uh, Energy Wire, um, which is out of D.C. and covers the industry, um, they found that e- the EPA had, had basically said in this high-profile water contamination case in Texas, the EPA had said that Rendell had sort of interceded um, with then-EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson on behalf of Range Resources, which is a major driller here in Pennsylvania, and there. Um, Range said, actually, no, he was never a spokesman for us. But, you know, according to these emails in this report, he was, you know, getting involved in that case. So he's uh, he's been very active with, you know, other firms as well. He's a consultant right now for a natural gas uh, CNG company in Montgomery County. I mean, you could the, there's a lot. He, he's a busy person. What's wrong with that, though? I think what's wrong, at least about the, he's a very powerful uh, figure in media, as I mentioned. He's on MSNBC and writing this column in the Daily News. I think you just have to be really transparent about who you're working for. So if you if you do have a personal stake in the natural gas industry and you pen a public column saying, calling on your fellow Democrat to embrace it, then you ought to disclose that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So that uh, everyone knows that uh, this was uh, something in both parties. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you said that, uh, you know, many people think of it happening only during the Corbyn administration. You just pointed out that the former Governor Rendell, a Democrat. Let's move over to the Republican side. Michael Kranzer is the former uh, Department of Environmental Protection Secretary under uh, Republican Governor Corbett. Tell me about him. Well, yeah, he was the DEP secretary, um, and he left in, I believe it was 2013, to go back to a Philadelphia law firm called Blank Rome that he'd previously worked for. And, um, you know, now he serves as general counsel, outside general counsel to Sunoco Logistics, which many listeners will probably recognize that company has uh, a natural gas liquids pipeline that moves um, Marcellus Shale products from Western Pennsylvania to Marcus Hook in Philadelphia. And they, they're already doing, they're already moving the gas liquids, but they'd like to put in another parallel pipeline. And that's created quite a stir because, um, you know, I was just at Governor Wolf's pipeline task force meeting yesterday, and there were some just very passionate, emotional people. Actually, seven people got themselves arrested, um, not all about the Sunoco project, but about pipelines in general. So he left government to go work, um, you know, for the, he's their lead um, I forget his exact title, but he's the petrochemical and energy lead practice or something like that. All right. Let's uh, also talk about, let's see, um, Rob Powelson, who is uh, uh, with uh, current, he's in the public, he's a public utility commissioner right now. Yeah. Four out of the five public utility commissioners currently have um, business or industry backgrounds. Um, And again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that because obviously, it helps yeah, you to have knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> helps yeah. you to have expertise, um, but he actually he got into a little trouble uh, it recently. Um, actually, my colleague on State Impact Pennsylvania, Katie Culinary, wrote about this in 2014. He was part of this uh, business group called the Greater Philadelphia Energy Action Team, and he had sort of publicly said, "This is a great project, this um, Sunoco project to move liquids." And he talked about an economic benefits, and he sort of verbally um, and publicly supported the project um, while he was at the same time uh, a public utility commissioner who had to make decisions about the project. So. He, in response to after this article was published by my colleague, he stepped down from the Greater Ener- Philadelphia Energy Action Team. And, you know, he said, 
he just wanted to avoid any appearance of a conflict of interest. But again, I just think it raises the question of, um, you know, you you can support, you can have your opinions and you can support uh, the industry and, and its economic benefits. But you do have to remember as a public official that you first and foremost work for the public. Katie McGinney is uh, one of the Democrats running for the U.S. Senate right now, former DEP secretary, uh, also ran for governor in uh, 2014. What about Katie McGinney? Right. Well, as you mentioned, she's running for Senate right now. So she's been criticized by her uh, opponents. And there was a story in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette a few months ago just about her role in the energy industry since she left uh, public office. Um, She also briefly was in um, the Wolf administration. She was um, Governor Wolf's chief of staff for a few months in 2015 before she left to run for Senate. Um, so just a lot of the firms she's been uh, connected to, whether they're alternative energy firms or, um, you know, natural gas, wind energy firms, they've gotten state money. Um, so, you know, her critics have said her her ties are, are just a little too close there. Okay, so I, I just got an email. I'm looking at some of the emails that we've received in phone calls. Email uh, a doctor in uh, Lancaster who sees uh, other physicians going to pharmaceutical companies, and he's making the same comparison that uh, just doesn't feel that it's it's unethical. Is there a comparison there? Or fuse it is? Like I said, I'm not accusing any specific person of being specifically unethical. I just think on your way out the door, if you're a public official, um, People have it's a people have every right to question whether you're acting in the public's interest. Now, if you're a doctor going to a pharmaceutical company, you know, I don't know what the parallel would be other than were you were you pushing that particular drug before you left to take the new job? I mean, yeah. somebody could make the same ar- argument about journalists yeah. who go to public relations jobs, which happens True. all the time. And I know many wonderful. People. We call it about going to the dark side. <laughs> yeah, we joke about. That, we jokingly yeah. call it the dark side, but I know many <laughs> wonderful people who are former reporters who are doing PR. But it's the same same issue. Okay. So, Marie, we're almost out of time. Uh, The series is called Blurred Lines. Uh, It is on our website, WITF.org. Look at State Impact Pennsylvania. Marie, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for your hard work on this. You're welcome. State Impact Pennsylvania is a collaboration between WITF and WHYY in Philadelphia to cover the Commonwealth's energy economy. To learn more, visit WITF.org and click on State Impact Pennsylvania. For thousands of years, smallpox was one of the deadliest diseases known to man. Just a half century ago, diseases like whooping cough, polio, and measles struck hundreds of thousands in the United States. Today, smallpox has been eradicated, and those diseases like whooping cough, polio, and measles no longer wreak havoc on our population. But according to the National Institutes of Health, infectious diseases still kill more people worldwide than any other single cause. Tonight at 8 on WITF-TV, HealthSmart Hidden Hazards addresses why some of the diseases we had almost eliminated from the U.S. are beginning to reappear and why some infectious diseases are becoming harder to treat. Joining me is Kira McGuire, who is the producer and host of HealthSmart. Kira, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. It's nice to be here. All right, let's start with a broad question. Tell me a little bit about HealthSmart Hidden Hazards. So uh, this show, it it was interesting to produce. Um, 
we really take a look back at, at how far we've come um, with treating infectious diseases and how many, as you mentioned, we have a disease now that's been eradicated, smallpox, um, but how many other diseases we can treat or prevent today with vaccines. Um, and it's interesting that we're able to kind of use a timeline and take a look at um, at how far we've come. So that's a big part of the show is, is taking a look back and seeing how we've gotten to where we are today uh, with vaccines and with um, antibiotics. So much of the history relates to what we're doing today because, as I mentioned there in the, in the introduction, we have diseases and conditions that we thought were long gone that are showing themselves again. What's happening? That's right. According to health experts, um, some of this is due to kind of a, a growing trend of, of parents deciding not to vaccinate their kids um, against some of these childhood vac- um, illnesses that we do have vaccines for. So um, in Pennsylvania, for example, um, parents can choose not to vaccinate their school-aged children for a philosophical, a religious, or a medical reason. So that's quite a few ways there that um, that you could choose not to vaccinate a child. So we are beginning to see some of these diseases that we do have vaccines for. um, And according to health experts, some of that is due to this um, trend to not vaccinate um, kids. That's been a pretty controversial issue over the the last Mm -hmm. few years. Uh, Are there diseases, though, that, I don't know, some that Somehow there have been mutants that uh, over time that uh, they have found a way around either the antibiotics or the vaccinations, you know, how we treated those diseases. That's exactly right. I mean, that is kind of the other arm to this, um, according to health experts, is because of um, our use of antibiotics in treating these infectious diseases um, and in using antibiotics sometimes when we don't need them or beginning an antibiotic prescription, not taking it the correct way, we're giving these um, germs. These, these germs, a chance to get to know that an- antibiotic and uh, figure out ways around it. So we are in some ways creating these superbugs that are becoming um, resistant to antibiotics, and it's definitely a real big problem. What did you learn out of this program? Well, I, I found what was most interesting was a look back at the history, was being able to take a look at how far we've come um, and see where we are today and, and see what, um, what discoveries have been made in order to get us to the place that we're in today. Um, but the thing that was most interesting to me um, in the way of eye-opening is probably uh, we give some tips on the show of, of how to avoid germs and how to stay healthy. And um, just seeing some of the, the germy surfaces and seeing some of the ways that we come in contact with germs. Um, for example, um, a, the flu virus. If you, if you have flu virus germs on your hands uh, and you touch a surface, that germ can apparently live there for 24 hours um, without being in contact with you anymore. And then the next person that comes along touches that same surface um, up to 24 hours later can then get that germ and, and infect themselves. So um, some of the times time frames that we're able to provide on the show and uh, some of the the information on germs are certainly eye-opening. Health Smart Hidden Hazards. It airs tonight at 8 on WITF-TV. Kira, as always, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. And the program is part of WITF's Transforming Health Initiative. To learn more about hidden hazards, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Hershey Medical Center, and Wellspan Health. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to prepare for the storm that's coming tomorrow night into Saturday morning. Maybe even have some un- some unusual things talked about with snow as well.